1: Rotting in the Sun is the outrageous and provocative new film from Chilean filmmaker Sebastian Silva, known for his withering class satire The Maid and Michael Serra starring psychedelic comedy Crystal Fairy and The Magic Cactus. This new film sees Silva playing a sly version of himself in the midst of finding a film project to work on. He bumps into avowed Sebastian Silva superfan Jordan Firstman real-life social media personality, who also plays a satirical version of himself. Silva begrudgingly agrees to work with him, and when Jordan heads to Mexico for the pair's first creative meeting, things go very awry. Rotting in the Sun is a lo-fi, genre-bending odyssey that is packed with bold creative decisions and sharp commentary about the state of the world today. A withering statement on class is also delivered via interactions between Jordan and Sebastian's housekeeper, Vero, played by Catalina Savitra. The Star of Silver's 2009 film, The Maid. Rocking in the Sun streams worldwide exclusively on movie from the 15th of September. Hello, Movie Truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm
0: David Jenkins. I'm Sean
1: Lintham. On the show this week, Survivor's Guilt keeps a refugee up all night in Fremont. A social media celebrity searches for a missing filmmaker in Rotting in the Sun. And David's got to speak to its director and star, Sebastian Silva. And on Film Club, it's Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome, welcome. We have a new guest with us today fresh off uh, the Cursed Venice edition.
3: Yes, happy to be back, happy to be in a much more normal state of mind talking about movies now.
1: <laughs> so for people who aren't aware of your wonderful work, both for Little White Lies and other places, who is it that you are?
3: So my name is Shen Lin and I'm a freelance film journalist. I've been very lucky to, yes, write for Little White Lies, and I've been recently doing some stuff at British GQ. I've done um, writing for places like ID and another magazine as well. And uh, my day job is as a film programmer at a film festival called Take One Action Film Festival here in Scotland. So yeah, lots of things, lots of hats, like many of us wear, I think,
1: which is great. Tell me more about this film festival. When is that going to be out?
3: Oh, so this year is going to be taking place in December in Glasgow. Um, but yeah, it's a social and environmental justice film festival. And we program um, lots of documentary filmmaking, but also a fiction and short films. And uh, we kind of do lots of like multi-arts programming and engagement with campaigners and different arts practitioners to create like more beyond the screen events. So like linking what's on screen to ways into taking those kind of themes forward into different areas of life so yeah quite quite a great like strong climate focus that we have but also you know going across into other other things related things and yeah it's a very it's a great job it's a really small team but I'm very lucky to be there and I like love being on both sides of programming and writing um so it's a very blessed balance I think
1: (laughs) oh that sounds absolutely incredible I'm I'm so impressed and feel very lazy, um, but David's someone that no one could accuse of being lazy. Um, yeah, a little, a little new issue drop, no big deal. Anything you want to mention, Taylor?
0: You, you cannot call yourself lazy. Well, you, where's you my that, film festival? <laughs> you you could you couldn't do a film festival on top of everything you do um big big day yesterday um i i was kind of you know very very nauseous in the run up to it but yeah we 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 launched the 100th issue of little white lies and I can finally kind of talk about it a little bit now which is fun i mean if you go to our website you can see a sort of blurb that i've written about the issue and it's got all the details of what's what's going on inside it's got five covers and one one of which is a cool like slip case which which makes the issue feel feel very very deluxe designed by our amazing uh art director lauren boglio you, you'll see you you know maybe maybe discover the covers for yourself because i want to going into too much detail but it's a kind of conceptual four panel cover and all the covers sort of fit together in sort of in fun interlocking way and then inside the issue is it, it's a kind of concept job where we've the, we, we've taken you know the score system for little white lies you know the three the tripartite score system of anticipation enjoyment in retrospect we've kind of I, I we've kind of got a like past present future triptych constructure i mean that sounds very kind of like you know la da i know but um it's kind of when hopefully when you see the issue it's it's really fun but yeah it's quite a kind of grandiose thing i think but yeah it's still it's still fun and you know we want we want people who have never picked up the magazine but maybe there are some listeners here who who only know us through the, the the podcast this would be a fun first issue i think so that's my that's my sales pitch to to you listeners
1: Oh, I'm so excited to get to, to get my hands on it but you, I mean you must have been like looking back at the past hundred issues I've seen been watching on social media kind of the countdown going through them all I mean yeah. do you have can you choose between your children <laughs> like is is one <laughs> particularly like going back and reflecting on them something that you feel like yeah this is this is the embodiment of what makes this magazine special?
0: Oh, that's I, I, I'm going to be very diplomatic and say that, like, I, d- I maybe don't have a favorite issue, but I def- I maybe have like favorite segments in different issues. And, and I, I think that maybe you could do like I could do a kind of perfect issue by taking like 20 bits out of 20, 25 different issues and like sh- splodging them all together in one. But yeah, no, it's it's it has been really fun to like look back over 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 everything we've done in the past, and like part of the sort of research process was really sort of delving deep into the archive. And I think what what's really fascinating is going back to the sort of early early issues into sort of two thousand four two thousand five. is kind of how little has changed conceptually in the magazine, and its design has evolved in in some ways, and and maybe maybe the sort of editorial direction has changed a little bit. But actually, like. You know, you pick up issue ninety nine, and you pick up issue one, and you and both both of which Wes Anderson issues, uh, coincidentally. So, Life Aquatic and Asteroid City, and y- you know they're, they're they're very kind of you know you could you can definitely see the the sort of the through line there. So, you know, we we, we I th- I think that maybe 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 sort of one of the reasons for the magazine's longevity is kind of sticking to its format and 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 sort of being quite dogged in that in that respect and not sort of you know thinking oh maybe we should try something completely different as a as a way to to expand so you know it's it's sort of trying to do what we do as well as we can and 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 find like little miniature fun variations but yeah i think the the that tonally the, the 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 sort of the, the sort of fun funny element and the sort of fun design element just means that we've got such a big you know such a big range on in in, in that respect so yeah the cut co- the covers i mean uh, you know they all look you know you look at all the covers as well they're they're all so different but they're the same which is what we like
1: yeah i do have a few favorites in terms of the covers I still the first cow one really did something for me but i, I also just love that carol cover yeah. as well i feel like that. It's just something I want on my walls.
3: My my recent favourite has been the All the Beauty and the Bloodshed one. I think that's a stunning cover.
0: Yeah, I love all of those. I love them all. And yeah, it's, I think the weird thing is, is like, you know, this job and this role is, is, is kind of, it's perpetual. And you've got no, there's no real time to sort of, look back at what you've done and rake over the coals it's like as soon as you're done with one you're on the next so like we're, we're already like deep into the next issue now so like you know it's it's just never it's a sort of never-ending cycle
1: but I mean not to be too much like on the negative side but you've also kind of managed to have 100 issues through not a very easy time I mean Brexit making paper very expensive <laughs> there was the pandemic strikes Um, Like what have been like the biggest challenge? Apps? Apps is a problem?
0: You know what? I mean, yeah, it's always been challenging in different ways. I think that the magazine started at a a time when there was quite a sort of help. There was still a fairly healthy and robust market for like media advertising and print advertising. And the bubble kind of burst Sort of around the sort of late late noughts, really, and it, it, I think the magazine got had sort of reached a point in its stature where it was able to, able to kind of weather that storm. The sort of commercial financial climate is still really 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 challenging. Now more than ever, you know, we're we're sort of trying to think of new ways to kind of keep the magazine running and get support from from media media companies and and also like from our members as well. I mean, you know, we 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 kind of I, I realize that any of our followers and people who listen, we do sort of bang on about our our you know club little white lies, and it's actually like a super important way to just sort of keep the lights on, really you know, just help us, you know, every, everything goes towards paper stocks and print stocks and paying illustrators and writers. So like, you know, it, it, it's sort of like, I think making a magazine now is sort of the the idea of it is like you get the revenue from like 20 different little pots from all around and you hope it all comes together and and makes enough to be able to to make the thing happen so yeah it's really i mean and, and that's it you know just you know without going into too much detail but that's increasingly becoming a part of my job as well which is uh not suboptimal but but necessary i guess
1: yeah this makes it all the more impressive that over 100 issues we've never had a kind of drop in quality like the paper stock is still lovely i, I don't know i, I don't want to sound like i too into paper but it really does like you kind of have that you know it it never feels like a magazine in which anything's been kind of compromised
0: (laughs) one thing I would say is one it's a sort of a silly thing and a funny thing but like you know that you know the magazine is a sort of slightly strange format it's sort of like three quarters a four well that's a kind of non-custom paper size so when we create the magazine they have to cut it into that size and to do that adds quite a significant expense onto the creation of the, of the magazine and the, and the printing. And I think, I think there's, there's always been a like, Oh, if, if we'd only done it a four, it would have, it, it, you know, we, we would save like this huge chunk of money for every issue. It maybe wouldn't look as cool and feel as cool and feel as unique, but, uh, but we've never, you know, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that we've always sort of stood firm and, you know, we, we, we're all about the kind of aesthetic, Um, pleasures of having the issues lined up on your shelf and them feeling kind of uniform apart from the uncut gems issue, which was cut about an inch, sorry, about half an inch too short. So if you look at that issue on your shelves, you should have like a a little sort of two millimeters missing at the top there, which we we were slightly baffled by.
1: Yes. And like certainly nothing else compromised within the content, just as beautiful as it always has been the writing. You guys managed to get some of the greatest Film writers, I think, in the business, um, contributing, and yeah, to
0: a hundred more, Include, including your your bad selves.
1: Yeah, I've been around <laughs> since what? Promising young woman, I think, was the first one I made it to print. But yes, we should get on to the yes, films of this week. We've got uh, we've got some very exciting ones and a lot of uh, ennui to dig into. First up, it's Fremont. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. Who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. <laughs> Donia, a lonely Afghan refugee and former translator, spends her 20s drifting through a meagre existence in Fremont, California, shuttling between her job at a fortune cookie factory and therapy sessions. She suffers from insomnia and survivor's guilt over those still left behind in Kabul and who desperately searches for love. So David, I saw this at Sundance first and to me it kind of seemed a bit, it's almost like a prototypical Sundance movie, that sort of very gentle comedy beautifully shot, independent spirit about it. Um, How did you find Fremont?
0: Yeah, it's definitely got kind of big '90s vibes to it. I think, like the choice of black and white, and the and the very sort of slow, deadpan pacing, and the very subtle emotional landscape that it kind of draws for itself, all all kind of hark back to that '90s indie landscape of 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 people like Hal Hartley, Jim Jarmusch, maybe even a bit of the Coen Brothers as well, or Steven Soderbergh. But like you, you know, you, you it's very kind of it's very American indie. The way it's shot, the way it's performed, as well, like it almost feels like you know. You might even sort of think that there's an element of homage in there to that kind of classic time of classic period of American filmmaking. But it's it, it's still, I think, on some level, its own thing, and and it has a, it maybe has a sort of political angle that that is willing to look beyond the sort of interests and the happenings of specifically the U.S. and and you know by focusing on this on this character. Who is is this? Is this lost soul? Like she's she, she she's a kind of immigrant who is. Uh, I I think you know part of the film is about this this idea of you know I think I think I've read it in a lot of the reviews that talk about it. it's a film about the immigrant experience, and it's maybe it's maybe a slight twist on 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 it in that it's 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 sort of showing the the fact that. There there are still you know, the immigrants still have, have the have these problems and these issues and, and they have depression and PTSD and things that require help, assistance, and there's a lot of kind of emotional toil that comes from from, from living this quite me like what can be quite a meagre existence but there can you know I, I think the film also shows that there is there is a sort of poetry to it as well and you know there's there there are some lovely scenes of 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 the of the protagonist uh, dunya who goes and eats in this cafe every evening right like it's a kind of afghan cafe and she, she gets this kind of she gets this meal and and uh the proprietor is watching the, the like has a kind of soap opera on from home and they kind of they're, they're sort of secretly enjoying it, but can't, can't can't quite don't want to really admit to anyone or anyone else that they're that they're watching it. And there's just this kind of lovely deadpan interaction between them, and that's kind of like part you know how how the how the film rolls really.
1: Joanne, for you, I mean, it's very subtle. It's understated. Um, like, did you kind of get into the poetry of it, or did you kind of want it to give you a bit more?
3: Yeah, I definitely did. I think kind of like what David was saying. Initially, I was quite just caught by how much of an homage it felt to like those quite familiar styles. Uh, and you were saying, Leila, as well, that it seemed quite kind of prototypically Sundance. But I think sometimes those prototypically Sundance films can lean very far into um, it's too aware that it's trying to be quirky or it's trying to be, you know, twee and kind of cute and strange. But I really didn't feel that this crossed the line over into that at all. I thought it was really quite quite restrained in, in, in what it was trying to do. And I think that's what kind of really caught me was the intimacy of those moments because they didn't lean so far into kind of self-awareness or too much focus on how the image was coming across that you really could feel quite intimate with those characters, like those scenes with uh, her at, in the cafe, watching the soap opera with um, the owner of um, the, the restaurant. I really also liked the rhythms of it quite a lot. Especially the scenes of her making fortune cookies at the factory. I think it opens with that. And I have a real soft spot for, you know, careful attention to like the rhythms of labor and whether that's people kind of like commuting to their place of work. The way that they, you know, engage with, you know, the rhythms of that workspace. I think it was done really well in this film. And the deadpanness of it as well didn't ever feel alienating. It felt just quite um, not really a t- the tone of the film, but the tone of that character, which I think is quite a subtle difference, maybe, and I think it worked a lot for me because I could see her personality as someone who is being quite you know quite frustrated and about her inability to get these things that she needs um, from that therapist you know like she has that long back and forth with him basically where he 's trying to diagnose her with something, and she 's like i don 't really care, could you just give me the med so I can sleep um, I thought that the interactions she had with that therapist were really funny. I think Greg Turkington was really amazing in this. He kind of really reminded me of Bob Parr's boss in The Incredibles because he would just lace his fingers up together and put them on the desk and then talk to her about White Fang and it felt very, I don't know, it felt quite cartoon and I really liked it. But yeah, I thought the pacing of it was really beautiful and I was quite swept away by the emotion that it had really built up to by the ending.
0: Are you a, uh, a fan of the, of on cinema at the cinema? With, no, sorry, with, what's that? So that's that's a show that Greg Turkington does with with this guy, this uh, guy Tim Heidecker. I, I'll, I'll add and say that yeah, I thought the scenes with Greg Turkington were were really funny, uh, but so funny, but, yeah. but he, he but he he his kind of he does this kind of you know he's it's a kind of like anti humor. You know, it's like it's not. It's not about what he's saying, and, and there's no jokes. It's like it's it's purely the humor comes from the delivery and the, and the kind of facial nuances, and or often the lack of facial nuances. And those scenes where he's kind of asked, uh, yeah, the, the the whole thing where he's introducing White Fang to her, it's just like really really funny, like and and it it, it kind of borders on silly. But the way he kind of delivers it is so serious that you, that, 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 you know, you kind of you also get the comic element from her reaction to the situation as well.
3: Yeah, it was it was those scenes are honestly incredible because, like you said, he's just so deadpan about it. He's so serious about it. She's just told almost her life story about how she was a translator for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. And he was like, do you know what my favorite immigrant story is? <laughs> it's white fact. And then he takes out <laughs> the book and just starts reading it to her yeah that was great
1: i mean i do actually really like white fang but like yeah it's just it's such a brilliant shorthand for exactly who this person is like the white fang man (laughs) is like i I do believe it's now a a subgenre of human
3: yeah that one guy who thinks that story about a dog can explain everything about human nature and he really believes that
1: Well, half half dog, half wolf, technically. Good old white fang. That's true.
3: Sorry. Yeah, he does. He does emphasize that. My bad.
1: (laughs) Uh, We do have, uh, you know, this is not a particularly starry cast, but I'm wondering, um, what did you kind of think of the inclusion of Jeremy Allen White? He's kind of the internet's boyfriend with uh, the bear and a bit of a hot property. Keeps going for jogs, scantily clad.
3: Yes, Uh, big supporter of that, um, for sure. I think more... More internet boyfriends should be doing that. Although I guess they kind of are. They've all got the memo. Um, I thought it was really great. I don't usually like or enjoy when someone kind of feels like a cameo for the sake of a cameo, and I was worried that's what this was going to feel like because obviously you walk, we watched most of the film, um, and I think those of us who knew he was he was in the cast were just waiting for him to show up and like wondering in what kind of capacity he would, and because it had already been like a significant runtime of the film had gone without him showing up. I was worried that it was just going to be quite like a a throwaway appearance, but I thought it was so sweet. I really thought it was incredibly sweet. Some of my favorite lines in that film, I think, uh, were from his character. Um, so he's this car mechanic that she runs into because she's got a bit of a problem with her her oil change or something in her car I don't know car parts I'm sorry um, but he kind of like helps her take a look at it offers her a coffee they go to a diner and um, they're the only two people in the diner but they still don't sit at the same table because there's that awkward thing where it's like I don't actually want to intrude on your alone time and things like that and She is very deadpan, focused on her sandwich, and she doesn't want to talk to him. But he's trying to engage in conversation with her because he doesn't have any colleagues. He probably doesn't see anyone very much. Um, And I think there is this one thing that really touched me where he was talking about his job as a mechanic. And he was like, what if I have an off day? You know, that's someone's car and that's someone's life. You know, there could be a family in that car or something like that. He said, "All, all important jobs, like doctors, like pilots are done in twos. And I was just really kind of caught by that because he was just talking about his job and how he's probably spent so much time thinking about both the kind of emotional and real like life and death consequences of his feelings of solitude and how that bears on him. Um, And obviously she doesn't say anything back to him. uh, And then he kind of just feels a little bit embarrassed and leaves after that. But I was really caught by that. and I was like, yeah, I, I do think most important jobs are done in twos. And I think so much of this film is about solitude and about alienation and the ways you can feel alone even if you are with someone else um, And I thought that that was such a beautiful way to kind of sum it up and bring that uh, to like kind of complicate that relationship a bit with those those stories about like the immigrant experience and about how she ostensibly isn't alone because she has friends and she lives in this compound of everyone from her the same country but that still doesn't mean that you feel fulfilled in that way, like that you don't feel this kind of yawning sense of purposelessness and alienation sometimes as well. So I thought it was a really sweet role and a really well-written character, even though it was quite small in the end.
0: Well, one of the things also, just on that note, is that maybe I'm looking too deep into it, but there is there is an element of, this in, of, of it in that her job is to create the, fortune cookies and the messages and, and she gets she gets kind of a she gets upgraded to be actually writing the messages in fortune cookies and I think there is an element of it where you know she is right she is sort of writing these little sweet messages that that, that people read and they you know they, they they think about for a moment and then they kind of toss aside and the, the way that they're designed is they've got to be kind of short and pithy and have a little kind of poetic tinge to them and 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 I feel that like that the sort of central concept of the films is, is that she's kind of writing these fortune cookies, and the pe- people people kind of are, are sort of interacting with her it, with the same kind of fortune cookie sayings and and suggestions. But I'm not, I don't mean that in a cynical way. I, 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 it's almost like it's almost sort of a, a it's a very pro fortune cookie movie in the saying that there is that that you know that, that there is actually value in thinking about these these small lessons in life, and that we can apply them to different aspects of of, of, of of our jobs and our love lives and and family lives and and I think that's it's really nicely that idea is kind of evoked in this little montage in the middle where you have lots of people eating and, and opening their fortune cookies um, one one of which is the director boots Riley uh, who has a, a a charming interaction with a kid
3: yeah I really love that montage a lot too yeah yeah
0: no
1: I was definitely definitely charmed by this but um we've got more. More feelings of loneliness to get onto with uh, with our next film, so we should get some scores on this. David, do you want to go first with in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect?
0: I'd say um, anticipation probably uh, a three. I mean, actually, maybe a bit above above a three because I'm I'm a big Greg Turkington fan, so I probably would uh, want to see want to see it for, for 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 GT. But yeah, probably probably fours in retrospect. It's a it's a you know re- very very kind of Hushed, delicate film, and I think it—it kind of—it it has these sort of small, ambling elements that come kind of come together in a really satisfying way. Yeah, I just—I—I I think it sort of evokes something quite uh, a kind of gooey nostalgia about about my my '90s youth as well. So that's never a bad thing.
1: And then, what about you?
3: I think I'm in a similar but, uh I would say three because. Like we talked about before, I feel like on the tin, it seems like something quite like cookie cutter. Oh, not to say cookie, um, but sundancy, quite indie, quite quirky. And I think sometimes those things can be too, yeah, too too much trying to be what it is rather than focusing on what it can do and what it should do. Um, and uh, I was a bit like wary about whether it would lean too far in that direction for me. But in for both enjoyment and in retrospect, I would say for... This one was really sweet. It did really stick with me. And I don't really want to spoil the ending, but there's that scene with the ceramic deer at the end with Jeremy Allen White. And I thought it was perfect, perfect, perfect scene. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think I'm probably at a three, maybe actually a two, three, four, just because I think it it wasn't the greatest Sundance this year. And there was a lot of people kind of making like lesser versions of, of like what was the more established sort of Sundance Fair a lot of kind of not particularly funny comedies a uh, lot of in quotes elevated horror that was neither artful nor scary so I think I, w- I was wary of this one but yeah I, I thought it was absolutely lovely and upon reflection really it's uh, something that I kind of keep, do keep returning to um, and I'm very glad to be able to re-watch for the podcast but I wasn't kind of uh, exhausted by having to spend a week on Utah time next up it's Rotting in the Sun <laughs> Rotting in the Sun follows social media celebrity Jordan Firstman as he starts a search for a filmmaker Sebastian Silver who went missing in Mexico City he suspects that his cleaning lady in Sebastian's building may be involved with the disappearance but first up, David got the chance to speak to Sebastian Silva about his
0: meta-comedy thriller.
2: Bad reception follows me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Con- congratulations on the film. I really loved it. Oh,
2: thanks so much,
0: man. Yeah, it's a wonderful, surprising film. You know, As a filmmaker, you- you're someone who, um, from-, from my view, you're, some- you're someone who's quite industrious and you've- you kind of made a lot of films and... And you, you kind of, I guess you had this, like a you, we had the pandemic and then you you kind of had a bit of a break. And this is your, from what I understand, is this your first film since pre-pandemic? Yes, because like, uh, yeah, I think the last
2: one that you must have, if you ever heard of, it was like called Tyrell and we showed it in Sanders, And then I made this movie in Puerto Rico about kind of like a weird, like fantastic story about the hurricane sci-fi weird movie with a mermaid that went to tell and then it was put on a shelf by everybody i don't know why like just the movie didn't go anywhere man and like i did make a movie between tyrell and this one and it's called fistful of dirt yeah and there it is you know so it's like yeah but since the pandemic yeah, this is my first movie.
0: And uh, I would love to know, where has your creative energies been going? Have you been, write, have you been writing lots of different movies and is this the kind of, how How did it feel kind of getting back in the saddle uh, like and, and coming back to make this one?
2: Yeah, it felt, it was unexpected because I really wasn't planning on making a new movie. Like, uh, not that I'm like, oh, I'm going to quit making movies. I just hadn't been really inspired. I hadn't written new things. I had scripts around, going around, just to see if we could make them, but I hadn't been writing anything new, and, like, and I just can't help it. And it's, like, uh, especially when you move to a new place, you know, like, it's just so stimulating, and the new characters that were around me, like, I don't know if you know, but Senora Vera actually worked in the building that I was living in, and that is the building that I was staying at in Mexico City, and that is really my dog, you know, and it's like, <laughs> Mateo is my friend Mateo, who owns the building, and Jordan, I actually met him in Mexico, and he is that guy, and it's like, I don't know, I was somehow fascinated by my environment, and I'm like, I'm gonna ride like a comedy f- thrill of misanthropic. Comedy thriller about me and
0: everything that's around me right now. Is that something uh, you do do often? Do you are you kind of inspired by these kind of yes. right, these sort of yeah, chance meetings? I made a,
2: yeah, I made a movie called Nasty Baby, which not coincidentally because I did it, but I'm in it too. And out of like nine features that I have made, I put myself in two of them, and Nasty Baby is one of them. And I think it was yeah, it was it's very similar. I also shot it in my apartment but in Brooklyn, you know, so it's like, they're kind of, they're tween movies in a weird way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but yeah, there are similarities to this movie, so, and then, like, Crystal Fairy, or even The Maid, are things that, yeah, have happened to me in my life, you know, and, like, I really love fictionalizing what's going on around me, it's just because, that's where my imagination goes, really. Just like a bad date, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" And you exaggerate that what could happen, how bad that the <laughs> date could have gone, and then you have a scene, you know. And it's like that's kind of basically the formula, I guess.
0: I mean one one of the things that's fascinating about this film is that you know you you ostensibly play yourself in it, well, or a version of yourself. And could you talk a little bit about? writing a character that is so i guess closely based on yourself you know what what are the key differences and uh, you know would, would people people who know you watching <laughs> well, the film recognize well, the key you
2: the difference is like, like i am not always in that state of mind i would say <laughs> but i definitely have the philosopher i'm reading you know Emile emil suran is somebody that i've read since i'm like a like a teenager in mm-hmm. a way and and uh, he's very very mystical in a sense you know and uh, the way he uses death and suicide sort of like to keep to, to keep himself alive it's something that i uh inherit from him and other mystics or other existential philosophers you know like schopenhauer or whatever but yeah so it's like um it is very much myself but also you are more complex always you know like this is a character. And uh, as you said, it's like a version of myself. And the version that this guy is, is sort of my worst version, you know, just like self deprecating, completely avoidant, like, uh, arrogant, self obsessed, (laughs) bored, privileged, queer artist, in a way, it's like, just like the really the worst version of myself, which I not gonna lie I'm tapping into pretty often in my real life but is I'm not just that you know I'm also like a cheerful friend you know and like <laughs> a responsible professional I don't know I'm like yeah and many other things but yeah it was fun man and like luckily I co-wrote it with my my really good friend Pedro and uh, who's an incredible writer and he knows me very well you know so uh, we were concerned that the movie could come across as a, like a self grandiose sort of like self-obsessed piece of art or a piece of story or or movie, and like I was concerned because it's the last thing I want people to think, you know, that I really care about that, and maybe they will prove me wrong, you know. This is actually caring, but uh, yeah, I really wanted to like make a, like a, write this misanthropic letter to myself and everybody around me. <laughs> and jokingly you know because that's how i am at a at a dinner table you know i'm just like shitting on my life and everyone's life but laughing you know so it's like that's really what the movie is and and if i was gonna like yeah tear everyone apart i had to start with myself
0: well one of the other fascinating things about the film is you, you have this character, quote-unquote, played by Jordan Firstman in it. And um, I guess one of the things I really liked about the film is that you, he is kind of initially presented as this, I would say, you know, quite grotesque character and very much representative of this world of, of, of like, the worst of this world of sort of social media celebrity. But as the film goes on, you kind of, you, you we see... A, you know hidden depths to him and 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 a very different character emerges and i'd love to know like how you kind of built that arc and how and how jordan was involved in that
2: um i met jordan like um in mexico city in that plaza and like he actually had seen crystal ferry the night before that's why that's included in the movie because it was so funny that he had done that and then found me the next day really you know and like <laughs> So there was something very serendipitous about the way we found each other and uh, we had dinner that night and I found it hilarious, you know, and exhausting (laughs) and like ridiculous and all of the above. And I was by then sort of like toying around with Rotting in the Sun as a movie, you know. And uh, I wasn't sure who was going to play that character. Was it going to be me? And me was going to be played by somebody else? Or was I going to stay out of the picture completely? But yeah, I was like, he needs to be part of it. I don't know exactly how. And I asked him, and I and I was like, would you play yourself? Like, an influencer from LA who's obsessed with ketamine and cock. Like, and <laughs> he's like, 100% I would do that. And, uh, and then the collaboration began and, and it was, it wasn't easy because I have a big personality and he does too. And we were both sort of very vulnerable because we're ba- playing these real versions of ourselves. You know, again, not our entire selves, but like a pretty truthful, sort of <laughs> embarrassing, vulnerable part of ourselves. So it was a little tough, but we became really good friends. And now we're neighbors in LA and we are in touch every week and we'll probably keep working together at some point you
0: know and tell me a little bit about i mean he obviously he's someone who has built his own persona and he you know he has this personality that he's kind of cultivated himself and uh i wondered like what was it like kind of directing him him in a scene and and how much how much kind of freedom did you give him to just sort of bring himself to to the character well
2: um we did have a full script you know and uh and i i got a sense of who he was you know uh and so i wrote his character and like of course i would send them drafts and i would like be like please correct any dialogue if i'm like i don't know tone deaf in the way you're speaking or like things you would never say just like let me know what you prefer you know and like yeah. he came up with funny stuff and, smart stuff and we discussed some of the scenes, but most of the script was really written by Pedro and I and my friend Catalina uh, from Mexico, not the actress, another like a co-writer and yeah. friend of mine. And uh, so um, he got a pretty solid character written, but the paradoxical thing is that the character is himself. So it's like he's like fully contributing to this character, but also he had to play a role and um, He's a very good actor, he is a very good actor, Uh, he took directions amazingly, and he knew how to give subtle different versions of things, if you ask, you know, and he was resilient, and he is very fucking great, man, he's sucking cock in a (laughs) close-up, you know, and it's like, he's naked, and he's like, making fun of himself brutally, and it's amazing, and I really respect that and uh and I uh, admire it because like also the outcome is a success, you know, like he really lights up the room when he comes into the movie and he's making everyone laugh, and he is vulnerable and he yeah out of all of the characters is the one that has some little redemption you know
0: yeah i i like i for me, the kind of arc of the film and the the sort of emotional arc of the film is the fact that you kind of start off hating him a bit like thinking he's this super irritating character and by the end you kind of love him because he he yeah, he, you, he is the yeah. only one who's got this kind of empathy
2: right yeah it's the only one who really cares you yeah know? Like, where the fuck is this guy man <laughs> yeah and it's contradictory in a very sort of in your face way like for instance when he just tells sebastian that he loves him and and then a fan comes and he makes out with the fan and and turns around to Sebastian and tells him this is real, this is real and like there is like this contradiction about him or this seeming contradiction that he's like okay he's in love with Sebastian but is he... why is he having so many orgies with (laughs) strangers and he's like it is fine that is that is also a possibility you know he's just like a hypersexual guy but he maybe is in love with Sebastian It's, it's possible you know so it's like it also plays with people uh, prejudices in yeah. a way, you
0: know, that, yeah. Sebastian, thank you so much for your time.
2: Oh my God, thank you, man. Uh, thanks for great questions and for watching the movie. Please share it.
0: Oh, no, we'll, we'll do, we'll do. So, Joanne Lin,
1: this is a wild one. (laughs) I think a lot of the attention to it was because of the amount of male nudity um, that was going on screen, which I think in some ways is distracted from just what a wonderful little quirky film this is and what a wild ride it is. Did you have fun with Rotting in the Sun?
3: Oh, I had so much fun with it. And yeah, I was talking about this uh, to, to a friend recently, actually, about how with all the conversation about the nudity and all the unsimulated sex, I think, and, and the marketing materials that have, you know, come out about the film, I think you get quite a different picture totally to what it ends up being. And I kind of love when a film does that. And yeah, there are lots of kind of penises on the screen, but I think nothing I've watched so far has managed to capture the pathos of a penis as well as this film. It kept on reminding me of that tweet that gets pulled up every single time we see like a man with sad eyes where it's like he has that sadness in his eyes you only see in eastern european gay porn i kept thinking about that while (laughs) watching this because it was so so special in tone i think it was really fun but when people have described it as like you know that kind of like raunchy comedy i've also felt that that isn't quite right i think it is something that feels really Difficult to pin down in terms of its atmosphere and its mood, because it is quite shape shifting. I think it was quite queasy at sometimes. It's really funny, basically all of the time, but it's also very bleak and very sad. And like, it, it was very committed to what it was doing, and it was very ambitious, I think. And. I like when films feel strange in a real way, I'm not in a contrived way. There would be these scenes where they have these really quite bleak conversations and it's happening inside um, Sebastian Silva's flat which has murals that he's done of like multiple penises, you know, penetrating like an anus and there'd be like these really bleak conversations happening in front of them, but it doesn't feel contrived. It just feels like this is the conversation that these characters need to have at this moment and it happens to be in this flat so this is what we're seeing and i think it's quite it's quite difficult to be able to film something like that and have it feel natural instead of like this is constructed in order for the film to look or feel strange or a bit odd and i think that yeah it really surprised me with how natural it felt how naturally strange i'm not sure if that's the right way to say it but yeah (laughs)
1: Yeah, this film has one of my favorite things that I like to think about, where when people create work that they're going to be in, like be it like Matt Damon creating, um, you know, Goodwill Hunting, or you know, Mike White making uh, Chuck and Buck. Like, I'm fascinated by the psychology of the roles that people write for themselves, and this is a kind of what the themes of the film are in some ways, because Jordan Firstman's kind of trying to make that happen for himself, but. I'm very intrigued that this is the version of Sebastian silver put of himself on screen. I mean you spoke to him david is he okay
0: he's he's a very ha- happy fun guy as you as you, as you would have heard in the interview yeah he's he's uh you know i think that there there is there is definitely a kind of awareness of all the all the kind of ironic nuance in the film but yeah no i i i think sort of going going beyond what what Shuan Lin has just said. One of the aspects that I like about it is that, in many ways, it's quite a kind of. I mean, I don't. I don't really want to go into. There's a point that we really can't talk about. Like, there's a. It's. A, it's a very sort of spoiler tastic film, and maybe try and avoid re- reading too much about it. Before you've seen it, but like the, 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 it does this amazing thing where you, you we're, we're introduced to this character of of Jordan Firstman, who is a kind of all the all the kind of performances and characters are kind of delivered in these in these kind of strange inverted quote marks, where they're based on real people, but they're they're actually very different versions of the real person. They're kind of almost there's a kind of grotesque caricature element to them, and and Jordan Firstman is, is kind of he meets. Sebastian Silver is on uh, is 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 kind of like cruising this beach and, uh, and and Jordan Firstman runs up to him nude and just recognizes him and, and has and and sort of explains that he's just seen one of his films and you know he's this internet celebrity he's a sort of social media celebrity and he does these kind of you know awful kind of narciss- narcissistic and, and sort of catty little uh, internet videos and uh you know Sebastian Silver being the uh you know the highfalutin film director who's made loads, m- made loads of prop- proper films, is is kind of repulsed by 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 his kind of his moral world, and I mean there, you know, as you say, there is there is definitely a bleakness to the film, and it, and it goes down some very kind of bleak alleyways in 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 in, in, in what is exploring. But there's also some, I also think there's some very kind of beautiful elements of it as well, and it's and I think there's a part of it that's asking us to kind of look twice at these pe- at, at people and you know maybe it's a it's a film that i think is very much uh, it's a film about filmmaking and about the not just not just about the filmmaking but about the films themselves and needing to spend enough time with someone to really know who they are. Like, can we, can we spend 30 minutes with someone on a TV show and really get a sense of them? Can we, you know, if we've got an internet video where someone is talking about themselves for two minutes, can we really get a sense of them? But if we're with someone for 90 minutes, we can see an arc. We can see the different aspects and, the different choices they make and the different layers of their, of their being almost. Um, can it make us kind of change our mind on someone? And I think the, the thing that this film does, I'm speaking quite abstractly here, cause I can't really talk about the plot, but it's a film that is uh, that through its 90 minutes, it, it convinces you to go from, I, I, this is maybe this is a very personal reading, but it goes, it, you know, you go from disliking a character very intensely to actually thinking they're actually a very kind of beautiful empathetic person and 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 it's it's one of the it's a huge spectrum that you can you kind of travel across across this across this 90 minute film does that make sense
1: yeah no that makes perfect sense <laughs> i mean it's like it's it, it's he's so able to kind of show you know like the unflinching feelings of like despair and being detached and kind of almost disassociated from the world around you but then is able to kind of yeah pick up on like the beauty that you can find and like the the humanity that exists within unexpected people it's like it's a it's a very clever film and like some really interesting like juxtapositions in that way
0: don't don't get me wrong like he, the situation is what causes this change like the the situation that that sebastian silver has kind of created is the sort of motivation and catalyst for for, for how this change occurs so maybe you know maybe maybe it's more about that less less that there is a nice person lurking under under the skin of every awful person and more that like when it come when it comes down to it when things things are looking bad people will naturally find the empathy within them to try and like sort out a situation maybe maybe that's not not tr- not true but 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 the film i like the suggestion that the film is giving
3: i like what you were saying about how it's a, it's a movie about filmmaking because yeah something that really struck me was how concerned it was with depicting these characters' decisions about who is allowed or who they want to narrate their lives and whose gaze is our, um, like, performance of life is refracted through. And uh, obviously, like, Jordan Firstman wants Sebastian Silva, and he's like, I want you to come and do this project with me. Uh, and he's chosen this man and him as, like, an artist and him as a filmmaker to tell his life story or something like that. and uh, But even the, the videos, you know, you were talking about, like, the TikToks and stuff that he makes and all those, like, that banana bread joke and things like that. Like, I think even in ways that are slighter than a film, you know, we engage with people's depictions or performances of their personality and their kind of commercialization of that on a day-to-day basis. I mean, we're just kind of bombarded with screen culture in a lot of, in much smaller doses nowadays. But also I think something that this film does really well is to really underscore how everything is performance and how everything is an act of either self-narration or asking someone to narrate yourself for you. And that really uneasy feeling between how much do I actually know about this person, what's surface and what's, you know, core and like you said I think that builds towards an ending where you really do see all of those layers of that person's Uh, Being, yeah, kind of really destroy this idea that we can ever know someone from what they choose to present or what they sell about themselves online and things like that. So I thought it was actually quite complex work about the surface, surface and depths of people, and also lots of interesting things about like class and race, and also labor, like the labor of making art, the labor of filmmaking, and also you know uh, the labor that goes unseen to prop up the people who are able to do that work um so i think it did a lot of things
1: this film i was very very impressed by it
0: yeah no there 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 definitely is that kind of class element isn't there through the through the maid
1: yes and i mean and also just kind of the shifting character that you can see of mexico city itself that was all fascinating to me Uh, joanne lynn do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect I
3: think I was a three on this because similarly to the other film I was the way it was marketed I was like oh I'm not sure if this is going to be too too much of a I'm trying to be this kind of like raunchy explicit comedy film um but enjoyment and I think it was a four I really really found myself just like carried away and like swept away by the mood of it and then in retrospect I would almost say five I really can't stop thinking about it. I think it's like really strange and really new um and very moving. I had a great time with this. Yeah. I definitely had a great time with this one.
1: David, do you have an equally great time?
0: Yeah, I have to uh, in the past I've been I think I've I, I, like Sebastian Silver is someone who went through this period of making lots of sort of quick movies, quite like, you know, they were sort of quick, cheap, interesting, but I don't think ever really landed the punch their punches in the way that this one does. Um this is this is actually his first feature in 5 years and there really is a sense that I think that I think it's it's really interesting that although the film ostensibly looks like it was made very quickly and very cheaply the the amount of thought that has gone into it is 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 actually is immense and and it really it really has paid off so probably probably a 3 in anticipation but 4s for for uh, enjoyment in retrospect but yeah and even this conversation is maybe like nudging my in retrospect up cuz I think it is it is doing so much. And yeah, I mean, and anyone who who, you know, if if I think it's a film that all I would say to people who 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 are maybe going to watch the film is don't just give it 30 minutes. Get like the you you have to get to a certain point for the film to kind of start properly. So like don't just don't cut off 30 minutes. 30 minutes in Give it, give it like 40 minutes. And then, (laughs) and if you still don't like it, then, then that's fine. But like, you you got, you got to sort of get to the point.
1: The point, very specific (laughs) timestamp. Yeah. um, I kind of came into this not knowing anything. So I guess a kind of neutral three um, enjoyment. I think I was at a five. Like, I just love when you have moments watching something where you really don't know where it's going and like tonally and in terms of just, I mean, just in terms of, Characters that seemed more minor becoming more major. Um, I, I had had an absolutely wonderful time with it. Um, in retrospect, they are probably a four, um, but, you know, a very high four. I thought this was really one of my favorites of the year. Next up, it's Film Club. New York City layabout Willie gets an unwelcome visit from his Hungarian teen cousin, Eva. But just as he warms to her, she ditches him for her aunt in Cleveland. Impulsively, Willie and his dopey sidekick Eddie take a road trip to pick up Eva, after which they head out to find fortune and paradise
0: in Florida.
1: David, I believe this was one of your picks. Why did you want us to watch Stranger Than Paradise?
0: Well, because I hadn't seen Fremont, but my my delightful colleague... Hannah had written a review from Sundance, and she sort of described it as Jarmuschian And looking at all the stills, uh, and that kind of high contrast black and white, and there's a there's a still of her stood by a car, and it was just like, well, this 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 has big uh, Stranger Than Paradise vibes. So like, you know, let's go, let's do it on a on a on a whim. You know, it looks like the mo- the, the most obvious connection if you're gonna if you're gonna look at Jim Jarmusch's films, and. You know, I I think it's a bang on choice to be honest. Like the 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 kind of crossover is is quite quite immense. But yeah, I was um, I hadn't seen this film in yonks. Like I I definitely used to, watched it like five or six times. In the '90s, when I was really young, and 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 I m- remember thinking Est- Esther Bal- Balint, I think is is I Baslin Balint Balint, yeah, is it w- was 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 this kind of just iconic presence, like the way she dressed, the way she delivered her dialogue, the hats, the silly hat she wears at the end. There is like start, you know, people spend a lot of time posting memes of like Maggie Chung in uh, in 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 the Mood for Love. But I think Esther Ballin is in, in Stranger Than Paradise. You know, she is super cool in that film. But yeah, it's a very kind of sweet, touching film. And I think it's one of those sort of slow indie films that, that never, never gets to a point where it's kind of, testing you or like it becomes sort of alienating in its slowness or quietude or all that kind of stuff there's enough character stuff and there's enough there's enough action and there's there's people moving around and there are situations and a lot of the situations are, are very kind of dead end like you know going to going to see Lake Erie in the snow and when they when they you know this they're, they're just sort of sitting in their apartment playing cards and it's it's a it's a it's this film and, and in the same way as Fremont, I think it's a film which is just packed with these small, very often very banal moments like Willie playing cards or Eva listening to, to her tape player or reading a magazine smoking a cigarette. And it's, those are the moments that this film is about. Like those are, those are the big scenes in the film. Like, you know, I, I, I love, I love the scene of Willie just eating his TV dinner and it's not, it's not about the, the fact that he's eating the TV dinner. It's the way he eats it with, with this kind of this, this sense of American pride. And yeah, it, it also, yeah. On that sense as well, you know, you know, it is a film about the immigrant experience as well, in that she has come over from Hungary in search of this new life and has basically found kind of abject boredom in the American landscape but yeah, itself coming from like you know, I think Jarmusch is is a sort of avowed fan of like the early Wim, Wim Wenders films, like those kind of road movies, and and this this kind of feels like a, a an American version of, of your kind, you know, of of the sort of Paris Texas or Alice in the Cities and those kind of those kind of films.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it is. Um, I, I I kind of felt like it connected to both. Films in a strange way, where, um, yeah, that kind of... Uh, if There's a theme of the week. It does seem to be feeling alone, even when surrounded by other people. Jean Lin, was uh, this also your first time coming to Stranger in Paradise? I must admit, I'd never seen it before.
3: Yeah, it was my first time. Um, and I was really struck that it, it resonated with both of those fil- other films as well, like you said, Leila. So I think amazing pick, David. I think it was such a perfect... Perfect, uh, perfect choice for a film club. I think all three films are about kind of the disillusionment of place in some way. I love Stranger Than Paradise because it really kind of nailed that feeling of going somewhere on holiday and being like, now what, what are we doing here? What Exactly what are we doing here? We're doing exactly the same thing as we did at home, but just in a new place. And everyone's a little bit more annoyed and strung out than they were before. So I really loved it. And I think, yeah, like kind of like what you were saying about Esther... Balint kind of just being such such a presence on screen I think all of them have this very easy cool about them I think that one shot where um I think they just arrived in Florida and they just got in and bought like three pairs of sunglasses and then I'm not sure whether it's Willie or Eddie but then like slips the sunglasses onto her face when she's like leaning out the window in the car and then all three of them look out they're wearing sunglasses I was like it's such a like so stylish but in a very natural way like it doesn't try to it isn't trying to create that shot it's very much just like it happens and you're just quite swept away by like the kind of normalcy of it um and yeah I think so much of this film is kind of like a hangout movie you're just like hanging out with these three people and you're watching them do like you said the most mundane things like eating dinner, playing cards. She even, like, vacuums his flat. I think it's one of the most memorable scenes in a movie of seeing someone, like, vacuuming a flat, and it's interesting. But I think something else that was really, like, fascinating about the rhythm of this film was the way that it used all those fades to black. And I don't know what, uh, like, your experience with, like, watching that was, but to me it really felt like being embedded in this quite attentive rhythm To their lives because the way that it fades to black you kind of it kind of forces you to then pay attention to what the screen lands on after that it kind of prevents you from just like fading into this like passive observation of what they're doing and i think the fades to black kind of really just like refresh your attention or like try and prime you for what's going to come next so i think it was really yeah it was really stylish and incredibly watchable um and it's like watching people drift but the experience of watching it isn't drifty at all so i thought that
1: was really great yeah yeah so um round of applause and a big thank you for bringing that into our lives david
0: <laughs> no worries no worries they're all good i mean like his little his kind of early run of films are all are all, are all crackers
1: yeah i mean i've had Sorry, seen other
0: <laughs> bangers Bangers, crackers that's what bangers. I mean. Yeah. Crack- cr- crackers cr- makes them sound crazy. No, crackers, you know, <laughs> bangers. Bangers is, what I was, is the word I was looking for, yeah.
1: Well, we should move on to our one last thing, two more bangers, I suppose, for the listeners to get into. David, what is your non movie recommendation this week?
0: Well, this is a crazy one. I have just, just this fortnight, started watching for the first time. A TV show called The Sopranos. <gasps> Do you know it?
1: Stone Cold Take. The Sopranos is good.
0: <laughs> so, well, I've had the I've had the Blu-rays on my shelf for for probably about seven or eight years now, and they've just kind of been sat there staring at me and i think i want you know watching it with watching him with my wife like whenever we've sort of said let's watch the sopranos my wife's always been a bit like oh i'm not sure i like the idea of like a show that endorses a, a criminal you know it makes you you know, empathize with a criminal, which I think is a valid thing. She's—it's not that she's like she's like, uh, she's like a, a conservative moralist or anything like that. She's like just, I just—I just don't want to spend my time doing that. But we we finally cracked, and I—I I think she'd watched a Netflix show called Painkiller and, and said it was like absolutely awful. And that she needed something that was more robust and and had a sense of kind of quality to it. So we put we put the first couple of episodes of of The Sopranos on, and she was like oh my god where have you been all my life this is this is actual good well-written brilliantly performed thoughtful philosophical tv and not kind of you know trashy ripped from the headlines not you know not hyperbolic nonsense so yeah we're, we're, we're we're only like five episodes into the first series but you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stay the course
1: I recommend staying the course very much uh, it's such, I love The Sopranos I keep re-watching it uh, I just did one with my husband about two months ago um, and every single time you just pick up on something new and I love the way that so many things in The Sopranos get suggested and then just dropped and nobody mentions them ever again but as is life Not everything is foreshadowing. Juan what is your non-movie recommendation?
3: Um, I had one that was maybe kind of on theme with the films that we were talking about, although maybe this is just me projecting and it's not very on theme. Um, But is anyone familiar with Li Ziqi's YouTube channel. She's like this Chinese influencer, well, influencer in air quotes, but she lives in the mountains in China and she kind of grows all her food and makes all her food from scratch. And she's got millions of subscribers. um, And I used to watch her videos quite often at home with my parents. And then one year, I think it was a couple months ago, actually, she just completely disappeared off the map. And people were wondering like if, you know, it was like government censorship or like what had happened. Um, But she recently came back into my life because there was this amazing profile written about her in the New Yorker called Lita T's Online Pastoral Poetics. And yeah, so maybe it was a bit of a stretch from these films, but I think it was kind of her videos really do reorient you with like the labor of growing food and like making food because she does everything from scratch. Everything that she does is using like age old techniques of like making tofu and making noodles and things like that. Um, so that kind of reminded me a little bit of the ways that a lot of these films pay mundane attention to like the slow rhythms of life. But also, kind of, that New Yorker article really kind of broke down the romanticism of it or kind of went into the ways in which she's quite calculated in what she shows. She's quite calculated in the image of life that she's constructed for herself and like what to sell you this image of her. So I thought that that had some connections or echoes with the films that we watched. Um, Anyways, if you ever want to put on like a 45 minute video of someone like fermenting plums to very calming music, now you have somewhere to go.
0: I
1: I do want to watch that. That (laughs) sounds like the most relaxing thing a person could do. Um, Yeah, she's amazing. Have they found her? Is she still off the grid? Uh, I think she's She's not off the
3: grid, per se, like she's still making stuff and like stocking her online store, but I don't think she's uploading onto YouTube anymore recently. I mean, like China's always had quite a complicated relationship with YouTube, I think so, and that that piece in The New Yorker goes into it quite a bit about like what you know like whether they were kind of towing the line between, I don't know whether it's beneficial for us to continue letting her post because she's also kind of helping us portray this very idyllic image of china and like romanticizing it and things but also it's like oh it's on youtube you know so i think i'm not really sure what she's up to now but um yeah she's an amazing presence on screen and just incredible i kind of want her life but i'm not sure yeah
1: this is going to re i basically have run out of architectural digest tour videos so i think this is going to fill up with for me <laughs> the fermenting oh, yeah, plums and the They're pulling very... of noodles yeah, very, very watchable. Very addictive. Well, thank you so much. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, the Stranger Than Fiction tale of how Reddit took on Wall Street in Dumb Money. And I'll be speaking to its director, Craig Gillespie. Our Modavar turns his talents to a gay Western in Strange Way of Life. And for Film Club, we return to Ang Lee's Boatback Mountain. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latouf. My guests week with David Jenkins and Swanlyn Pam. The podcast is hosted by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.